0: Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less gosh darn ukulele. So far. Indeed. Oh, on this episode, it's still cool out there for many of you, and, well, I'm guessing your winter beer larder is starting to run a little bit low. Now, if you're like most home brewers, you probably forget that you want a strong winter beer until, say... October. It's a little procrastination, so why don't we talk now while it's still cool and uh, we get you set up for success and get that big beer project going now so that when next year's winter rolls, you got a full cellar to go. I like that. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well... It's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewer's Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewer's Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at brewerspublications.com.
1: Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro level equipment and the best in cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same day order processing, and guaranteed two day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply.
0: Well, thank you for listening to those fine messages from our fine sponsors. Don't forget that if you have a chance to interact with them, tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing the Brew Files. It helps them know where their monies are best spent, and it helps us make the money. I like big beers. I know that uh, Denny and I spend a lot of time talking about session beers. After all, we're big proponents of session beer day, and we spend a lot of time talking about that, and we do wish that more people would make more session beers. But let's face it, sometimes you just want to go big or go home, or maybe you want to go big at home. What do we mean by big in a world where, say, every IPA seems to be nudging 8%? I think really the right place to start is to say around 9%, but, you know, say a starting gravity of 1080 and above. I do know that for some people out there, those are session beers. I'm looking at you, Fred Bonjour. (laughs) But I think 1080... That's a uh, that's a good starting point. What do you think, Denny?
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, I think that's a good idea. Uh, th- that's kind of the range where you start maybe having to take some uh, extra steps to make sure that beer is going to come out the way you want it to.
0: Let's face it, anywhere below say ten sixty five, you're probably running just normal. Uh, you start to get above ten sixty five, you have to start to do some uh, some more care and concern about things like yeast. But when you get above ten eighty, and if you get above eleven hundred, and we're going there. You really need to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's start with what I think is the most important piece, and that is, well, the yeast. I think the first thing that you do, and this is a place where I think Danny and I are going to disagree on, the very first decision that you make about your recipe that is going to be the most impactful on everything about the performance of your fermentation and the quality of your beer is choosing the right strain. And now I will say, as much as I love Saison du Pont and the various strains out there based on it... This is not the time to go with something that temperamental. You know, don't try and do this with Conan. Don't, don't try and, don't try and do this with anything that has a sort of an attitude problem. So I like to go for things that are reliable. And I will also say I have made a winter saison that started at 1120 with DuPont and it worked. It's because I threw a hell of a lot of yeast at it. And so for me, I have, I have things that I come to depend upon. Uh, the U.S. complex, uh, aka you know the Chico strains, California ale, you know so White Labs 001, one Yeast Ten Fifty Six, us Five, I've had success with those in the past. The Irish and Scottish ale strains, particularly the Scottish strains, I really like the Scottish strains and big beers. If you're looking more in the lager side, I like German Box strain, uh, the one from Ianger from White Labs, or Zurich Lager, aka S One Eighty Nine or WLP Eight Eight Five from White Labs. And then also the White Labs 99 super high gravity yeast. And I also have pretty good success in the past with dried Nottingham yeast. What about you, Denny?
1: Yeah, um, I think that we're more in agreement than not here. Uh, most of mine have been done with uh, like US complex yeasts, as you call them, uh, 1056, 1272, 1450, that kind of thing. But then I also make a uh, a fair number of uh, high-gravity Belgian styles. And I've had really good luck with uh, YU's 3787, the West Mall strain for those. It seems to just chew right through things. And again, keep in mind that when I'm brewing Belgian beers, there's a lot of simple sugars in there too.
0: Yeah, although I will say as a caution, I've always found that uh, 3787, to me at least, always wants extra time in the aging. For some reason, I think it just needs it needs a little bit more time to kind of come together.
1: Huh, well, maybe it's something you're doing. And maybe it's something I'm doing. I don't know.
0: This is my experience. <laughs> and I do love the flavors of the yeast. So I'm usually willing yeah. to put up with that that sort of like, okay, let's wait uh, sort of thing in order to get it to work. Here's the the thing. You've got your proper strain of yeast. You found your choice. Now, this is also the time when if you ever don't make a starter, and I mean, really, I, I usually like to make a starter because I think it's a good health check on the yeast. This is the time not to skip over it. In, in fact, ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you that – for A big beer, particularly once you get over that 1100 mark, I'm actually an, a big advocate of eschew the starter and make a starter beer. I'm talking go out and make a mild, make a Schwartz beer, make a you know, make a something small, something in under 1040 area or 1045 and below, and make a full five gallons of that thing because that is the most efficient way that you're going to get your yeast ready for this big brew that you're going to do. To give you an idea, let's take a look at the sort of the nominal proper pitching rates as people talk about them. For ales, they always say that you want to have more than 18 million cells per milliliter for, for these big beers. And really the rule of thumb is about 1 million cells per mil per degree Play-Doh. So if we're looking at that mythical 1100 beer, you know, 1.100, that means that's 23.5 Plato, doh which means that you want 23.5 million cells per per milliliter. And that equates to just for like a good old, you know, handshaken starter, about six plus liters of starter wort. For loggers, the picture is even worse because you want to have more than 24 million cells per milliliter. That's 33% more yeast. And if you look at that sort of 1100 barrier and you know, you kind of look at that hypothetical level, you're talking an eight to 10 liter starter. At that point in time, you're at half of a batch of beer. So you know what? I say go make a batch of beer. That way you can have something to drink while the other beer is fermenting.
1: Not only is it a real efficient way to make a starter, but you're not wasting all that word either because you end up drinking it.
0: Well, and I think it's important. Remember, again, we said lower gravity. So I know some people will say under 1050. I actually still really like to go under 1045, 1040. Because I think that's best for the yeast health, uh, yeast growth. In terms of starters, tends to be the most optimal somewhere between, say, about ten thirty two, ten thirty eight. I tend to like to stay in there. That's the reason why I have a really, you know, kick butt mild recipe. Uh, Denny, do you have a starter beer recipe that you like to use?
1: Uh, I just generally make a pale ale, and I kind of like go more in the 1050 55 area um, just because that's what I want my pale ale to be and I don't think it really hurts the yeast that much and besides we are like generating a metric buttload of yeast and that's a technical brewing term
0: it's a very good one this is going to raise the question how do you go and use that yeast again I tend to rack the beer off I let it settle you know make sure I got a good yeast cake and then I will pour off as much of the remaining wort that's in there, I'll swirl up the yeast cake, and I'll transfer that into a sanitized growler or some other container. And I'll transport that. Because usually when I'm brewing these big beers, I'm doing them off-site. I'm doing them for the club. And so I'll transport the yeast there in a in a growler container just as a big old slurry. I'll maybe throw in some fresh starter work just to just to give it a chance to grow up and have some fun and be active when I'm actually gonna go pitch. But I don't do anything fancy like yeast washing. I don't try and wash off the cake. I literally just get the beer out of the carboy or the keg, swirl it up, transfer it into another sanitized container, and go. Do you do anything special?
1: No, and I don't even do as much as you do. I just rack the starter beer out and put the new beer right back into that very same container. But that's because, you know, I'm not traveling like you are. So maybe a little bit more practical for me than it is for you.
0: Well, and also, I I mean, okay, I know that my sanitation is good. I know that I can trust in my sanitation, but for whatever reason, that thing of – racking out and racking back in i've done it a couple times but every time i do it it just makes me anxious so i always prefer to go (laughs) into a clean vessel
1: you need to learn to trust science and your judgment
0: no i need to have a prescription for xanax Uh. (laughs) oh
1: well maybe (laughs) yeah right that too of course
0: Anything else that we need to worry about on yeast, do you think?
1: Just make sure that you have a lot of healthy yeast and uh, that's all that it really matters.
0: I'm going to tell you right now, guys, if you're going big, if you're going to make a big, big beer, the worst thing in the world that you can do is skimp on your yeast health and quality. You need to drive this one in, into the dirt with good yeast because these yeasts are going to be stressed. And so the more of them you can provide the better off you are. I know that everybody's out there is is worried about the hypothetical fear of over-pitching. I do not worry about over-pitching when I'm making big beers.
1: Yeah, not, not in a situation like that, for sure.
0: Let's go on to my favorite subject, which is recipe formulation. But actually, first, you know, I totally forgot. What do you normally make when you're making big beers? What, what are you playing around here?
1: My big beers tend to be either like a uh, a barley wine, uh, like my classic old stoner recipe, or something Belgian. Um, I don't really uh, do a lot of other things like uh, like your uh, Falcon Claws or anything like that.
0: Well, yeah, I, I tend to make a, a barley wine. I have one that I call my Mortgage Killer that's designed to age for thirty years. I have. The Falcon's Claws. I've got other barley wines. I also do sometimes a triple IPA or, yeah, I do a massive Belgian. Like I've got a a Westy 12 type clone that I like to, like to pull off. That thing's a pain. Or even actually a, a really big, strong Scotch ale.
1: Yeah, and I I do that every once in a while, like my Wee Shroomy, um, something like that. I, I just don't brew as many big beers as I used to, so the, my choices are, are have been whittled down.
0: Now that we've got our styles out of the way, let's talk about the actual formulation. I, and I think we have some disagreements here, but I tend to, no surprise, because I've harped on it multiple times in the past, I tend to favor simplicity. Uh, I tend to really look at trying to get As much stripped away from the beer recipe itself as I possibly can because we're dealing with such mass quantities of stuff that I feel like to overburden the malt bill with a lot of other ingredients or to mix in too many varieties of hops gets us into that danger zone of of tasting brown much quicker just because there's so much. So the example that I like to point to is the one that everybody points to as being the first Barley wine, and again, this is all beer history, so things are a little squidgy, so either around 1900 or 1870, according to some records, it was first called a barley wine, and that's bass number one, and that was the strongest beer that bass made. Bass number one barley wine, and the historical record seems to indicate that that whole beer was nothing but pale malt, up to an original gravity of around 1110, so 1.110, and a ton of hops, And that's it. And that's what the was the model for one of my recipes called uh, the Queen's Diamonds. I really feel very, very strongly about the idea of stripping away a lot of extraneous stuff because I think it's going to get muddy super quick with all the stuff that's in there.
1: My theory is always use whatever you want to get what your beard needs, but don't use anything that doesn't really belong there. So I don't strip it down as far as one ingredient. I mean, you know, my old stoner barley wine has uh, pale malt, Munich, Munich, and Crystal 60. Belgian beers tend to be, you know, pale malt, candy syrup, maybe some special B, maybe a little bit of some kind of dark malt sometimes. Three or four ingredients for me, I think is more normal for something like that.
0: I'm talking like I've seen a lot of barley wine recipes out there and even some of my original barley wine recipes where it's like uh, a pale malt and like three crystal malts and this malt and that malt and another malt. And I was like, no, stop that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. More is not necessarily better. But then neither is less.
0: No, that's true. Use use what you need. But like in the case of a barley wine, just a straight up barley wine, I'm really a huge fan of the idea that all you need is just pale malt. Yeah. So now, speaking of all those hops that are going into a barley wine, one of the things I've noticed is that it is really hard to push a ton of hop flavor and aroma against that big sweetness and strength. So not only do we have all the sweetness of the malt, but also ethanol itself in a lot of these big beers actually takes on a sweet flavor. I would say expect that you're going to really have to push your hopping in order to actually get you know the hopping levels that you want because remember of course also the uh, isomerization is either gravity dependent or protein dependent uh, depending upon what we find out in our experiments and I would also say expect to do a lot of dry hopping. Mm-hmm. The classic example that I point to here is my feelings on the hoppiness flavor and the hoppiness feel of Plenty the Elder versus Plenty the Younger. And if you've ever had them both side to side, even though Plenty of the Younger is supposed to be a massive IBU beer in comparison to Plenty of the Elder, I find it to be the opposite. I get a much brighter, bigger, bold hop experience out of Plenty of the Elder. And it's the same thing as, like, say, Dogfish had 90 minute IPA versus Dogfish 120 minute IPA. Same thing. That 120 minute beer, the one that's the really big one, to me, tastes sweeter and less hoppier than the 90 minute, even though in theory it has a lot more IBUs in it.
1: Yeah, it, it just, they just balance it differently, uh, because I, I definitely agree the 120 is a lot sweeter, which is why I don't care for it a whole lot.
0: Other things about recipe formulation, there's absolutely no shame in using sugar or DME.
1: Oh, yeah, or or candy syrup or whatever whatever fits the style you're making.
0: Well, I was going to say, I mean, yeah, for the Belgians, candy syrup's almost a uh, complete necessity. Now, with like an English barley wine even, a good portion of sugar is actually not a bad thing in there either. No shame in using sugar. It's used all over the place.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it kind of depends. I mean, so- some of the uh, big beers get that way by starting way high and finishing – Semi high. Uh, some of them get that way by starting lower and then finishing really low, and that's where sugar can be a, a real help to you.
0: Absolutely. And then also remember, we're going to start dealing with mass quantities of grain. And one of the things I've noticed is that when you're doing this, you know, you start to lose some efficiency, you know, in terms of you know what you think you're going to get out of the grain. And part of that's just a sheer dilution factor. So one of the things I will argue for, and again, going back to the bass number one example, is consider when you're doing this, doing a no sparge. And what we mean by that is you put enough water in your mash that when you actually drain the mash, you get the volume that you need to boil and you don't do any additional sparging. Or if you're going to do any sparging because you need to make up some volume, you do very limited sparging and you take the efficiency hit. Because remember, Tell us, we're homebrewers. It's grain; it's relatively cheap to do, and this is a big special beer that you are making. So, I would say no sparge this, or at the very least, make like a British brewer and do a party guile, right? And what they what they would do is, yeah, take the take those first wines, send them off to one place to go make the barley wine or whatever the strong Burton ale was, for instance, and then they would sparge and take that over into another kettle and go make a secondary beer. And some of these beers that I've done, some of these big ones, I'll use some of that that runnings to go bump up the volume on the first beer, and also you get a free beer out of that second portion. So consider doing uh, party gals. Make sure that you have the extra equipment on hand and use that to you know kind of control the volume in there. But I would I would really stray this is not the time to try and go for maximal sugar extraction with maximum sparging efficiency because that sparging efficiency is going to make you pay your cost with the boil,
1: right? Kind of kind of in line with all that, too, is make sure that you have the equipment that will handle the amount of grain and water you're going to use. The first time I brewed a barley wine, I hadn't really thought about that, and I was using my 48-quart cooler. And that sucker was so full, it, you couldn't even really stir the mash. I ended up buying a 152-quart cooler to use for barley wine. Uh, generally, when when we make my old stoner recipe, a friend and I get together and brew it together. But it takes 60, 65 pounds of grain, and, you know, <laughs> you need a big cooler to handle all that.
0: And then the last thing to cover in the mashing is the idea of double mashing, which you may have heard of, which is basically using... You know, two different mashes where you use the wort from one to infuse the other one. I know a lot of people talk about this. I've had mixed bag experiences with it. I'm not a fan.
1: Uh, our listener Jim Leininger is uh, doing that as we speak and reporting on it over on the AHA forum, and he's having really good luck with it. So it can be done. It can
0: be, but uh, I just—I've never been a fan of the beer that's been made with it. So
1: yeah, right. And I've—I've I've never done one, and I can't even tell you that tr- if I've ever tasted a beer made that way. So I will bow to your experience
0: there. I've only done it a handful of times. Now let's move on to the brew day. First things first. I think uh, as we'll get into when we talk about the uh, recipes here, make sure you have the equipment on hand. (laughs) Denny, you went and bought a special mash tun just to do your barley wine. Yep,
1: 152-quart cooler, which means I can do 11 gallons of barley wine, 70 pounds of grain, a quart and a half per pound, and still have enough room to stir it.
0: Second piece would also be to make sure that you have on hand some extra boil kettles and pots because, again, we're talking about this is a perfect time to do a party gal. Get some extra sparge runnings, make another beer. Well, you better have an extra pot on hand in order to be able to to boil it and make it work.
1: And with an extra pot, you need an extra burner also. Yep.
0: So invite a friend over. Have them bring their equipment. And then, because we're talking about the the pots, I would say make sure that you uh, are prepared to boil for a while. So make sure you have extra propane on hand if you're boiling that way. And the reason for that is because you're going to have a lot of water coming across with your, your beer, particularly if you're trying to do a full sparge beer. You have to remember that the maximum gravity of sugar from in those first runnings I think I've ever seen is around 1100, 1110. The highest I've ever seen from a full no sparge patch is around 1085 base, uh, maybe 1090. And the maximum, uh, the the cause for that is sort of just a maximum solubility of sugar in solution and osmosis just isn't always your friend. (laughs) That's very true. Also keeping on hand not only the, the, the extra equipment, the extra propane, also keep on hand some uh, DME. And part of the reason for that is because when we're doing these big beers, your usual mash efficiency tends to drop. You know, you're not, you're not going to hit that you know magical 75, 80, 80% mark that you normally would, at least a lot of times.
1: Especially if you're doing no sparge.
0: Well, yeah, particularly if you're doing no sparge. Make sure you keep some extra DME on hand. Now, because the argument here is what are you trying to target? Are you going to try and target your original gravity? Or are you going to try and target your original volume? And to me, you can you can get there with the DME and get the best of both worlds. And with the amount of DME that you're normally going to need to correct, you're not going to notice any sort of impact from it. Last thing about the about the boil that I'll say is uh, make sure that you have some yeast nutrient as well. I like to add it at the 15 minute mark. I know we normally don't uh, add a lot of yeast nutrient to beer because really beer comes with most of the nutrients that our, our young yeast need. But in this particular case, they are going to be stress bugs the whole entire time, so give them a little extra help.
1: Yeah, I use yeast nutrient in every batch that I brew because I just consider it cheap insurance.
0: So, Danny, do you have any other brew day uh, suggestions?
1: Uh, just prepare yourself for a long day, especially if you're party-guiling. And uh, from my point of view, don't drink till you're done because it's a long day and you got a lot of work to do.
0: And don't forget, if it's a long day, well, you can just, I don't know, make a party of it. <laughs> Make some ribs. That's what I've done.
1: Wow, you're you're a brave man. I, I can't I can't uh, concentrate on two things at once.
0: Well, that's because I'm not an old stoner. So now we've got the beer brewed, and I will say that the most important step about fermentation actually starts at the end of the brew day, at the end of the boil, and we've talked about this uh, a lot. To me, it's very foundational. Too much heat means too many yeast esters and other less savory aromatic compounds, like say, fusel alcohols, because your yeast are going to be under stress. We've stressed this a lot. Your yeast are going to be under stress. So don't make it worse by making them hot as well. So for me, anytime I'm doing a big beer like this, it's exactly the same thing that I do with my saisons. I get that beer down into say the mid sixties. I get it down below my fermentation temperature. And then I try and keep it somewhere in that same range, right? So let's say I'm doing a, a barley wine. I will try and go down to 63 degrees before I pitch. And then when I pitch, I allow it to come up to, say, 65 and let it run there. And then I make sure I give the beer plenty of time to ferment. This is not going to be one of your 10-day wonders. It's not coming out of primary that quickly because there's a lot of work to be done. Even if the yeast are getting the gravity all the way down to the target point in time, you still want to give them extra time just to kind of handle their business. Yep. Next up, aeration. I think aeration is absolutely important here. And actually, I will argue in favor of oxygenation. And I will usually do a double oxygenation, particularly if I'm doing one of those 1100 monsters. So what I do is I'll oxygenate at the time just before I pitch and then wait about 12 to 24 hours, depending upon where I'm at in the day. And I will give them a second short burst of O2 just to give them a little extra sterile boost. I'm a big fan of that. Denny, I know you use a wine whip, so I don't know if you do the second aeration. Uh
1: You know, I have sometimes, uh but it, it just does not seem to make any difference to me. You know, again, if you want to do it, it's like cheap insurance. Again, uh, I have never used oxygen, always just aeration, and I've never had a problem doing that. So, uh, knock on wood. Hopefully it'll keep working for me.
0: Okay. Next, I would say a blow off tube or open fermentation is an absolute must. Don't try and run your airlock here because all you're going to do is generate sadness. Get a blow off tube in there or do open fermentation and make sure you catch the yeast that's going to come flying out of that carboy. Because the thing is, part of the reason to keep this thing cool is once that yeast gets going, if this thing's warm at all, it's going to blow up and turn into a geyser. It's gonna, it's gonna be scary, even at cool temperatures.
1: Yeah, there's so many fermentables there that it can really take off and uh, give you fusils you don't want, and just ruin all that work that you've put
0: into it. Well, not even just the fusils, just the mess.
1: <laughs> I guess I make such a mess all the time. It didn't occur to me.
0: Other thing is, we talked a little bit about sugar and how sugar can impact the flavor of fermentation. I know there are a lot of people out there who swear by doing, like, say, a late sugar addition, which means. You know, go and, you know, make a a sugar syrup and add that into your fermenter after the yeast is established. The idea being let the yeast get themselves established in a lower gravity environment so that they have a little bit more health and a little bit more time to set themselves up. Then hit them with the extra food and the extra stress. Some people swear by this method. I tend to swear by just having good, healthy yeast at the beginning, but we are going to test this.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, but I'm with you, man. I, I just put the sugar in when I'm brewing, put it in the kettle, and I've never found a problem doing that.
0: So then you got to expect that this is going to go for a while. Like we said, this is not going to be your 10-day wonder. I say expect at least two to four weeks for primary, uh, secondary or barrel aged for a few months, and then bottle for a few months if you're doing the bottles. If you're not doing the bottles, don't worry about it. I would give this thing plenty of time. After all, you're going to brew this – Relatively soon, and really only going to be in the mood for it in you know say late twenty eighteen. You got time, and of course this also changes if you're trying to make a triple IPA. In which case, hurry up. <laughs> yeah, right. Add more hops, and then the big problem, the one that scares everybody. I think the thing that keeps every uh, most people away from doing one of these big beers, if they've never done one, is what do I do if you get if my fermentation gets stuck? My rules on this one is first take the be- uh, taste the beer because I had a beer that I did with a friend of mine that he called black wine it's terminal gravity when we went to go transfer it was at 1050 big high terminal gravity and we were we were scared we were trying to figure out oh god you know what are we going to do with this and then we tasted the beer and realized that I mean this thing was like a big super mega imperial stout and we realized that 1050 the beer actually tasted great and was well balanced you know, the roast wasn't overpowering. There wasn't, uh, the alcohol wasn't hot. There was enough sugar and everything else in there. Yeah. I mean, it was sweet in, in a lot of ways, but there was a lot of other stuff to, to keep that sweetness at bay. So maybe your hive terminal gravity is okay.
1: One of the most common questions I get is about my bourbon vanilla imperial porter recipe. It starts at 1086 and finishes around 1026, 1028. And I'm always getting emails from people asking how to get that to go down, thinking they have a stuck fermentation. No, you don't have a stuck fermentation. You have a finished fermentation. So make sure of that. And uh, if you're not certain the fermentation is really done, you can always try a fast fermentation test and uh, see what kind of FG you can expect.
0: So let's say that you tasted the beer and it's not done. Other things that you can do, rouse the yeast and warm up the fermenter. So if you've been fermenting, say, in your basement, pull the thing upstairs, let it let it have a little house temperature. At that point in time, most of your esters and fusels and everything else are going to be set. So it's not a problem to warm the beer up a little bit. See if that helps. Now, if that doesn't help, then what I say is you've got to make a small starter of yeast, you know, get a, a, a vitality starter going, shake a nut stirred type thing, get it very healthy, get it very active, get that in there or use a properly rehydrated dry yeast. Any other tips for a stuck from it?
1: Uh, no, I think that those are, are really good ideas, man. That's exactly the way I'd approach it.
0: Okay. Now let's get on to packaging. You've made the beer, you got your yeast healthy, you fermented the beer. Now you want to now you want to actually get this thing in a state where you can go and drink it because that's what you want to do. First things first, I will say kegs are your friends. I know a lot of people love having their beer in bottles, particularly when they're strong bottles, but kegs are your friend. If you want bottles, carve the beer in the keg and then Pressure fill the bottles. I'm a big fan of that idea. (laughs) It makes it nice and straightforward for sure. Yes, it does. If you absolutely insist on priming, that's fine. I know a lot of people out there say, oh, well, you can repitch yeast. You can add additional yeast. I've never done that. I've never had a need to do that. Again, I think this goes back to the beginning where I said, you know, lots of good, healthy yeast forgives a lot of sins. And I think it does that here, too. That's what I do. And I know, of course, having said that, this means that the universe is going to set me up for failure the next time I try and naturally bottle a, a big beer.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have, I've added yeast more often than not, although when I don't do it, it seems to turn out exactly the same. So that probably means I didn't really need to do it. But again, you know, that goes back to my
0: cheap insurance theory. So what sort of yeast do you add to the bottles?
1: Oh, just, you know, something like uh, us 5 or Nottingham and you know I don't I don't do it in the bottles right, I, you do it I, in the I bottling batch bucket. prime, yeah, so it goes in the bottling bucket with the priming sugar
0: I, and I'm assuming uh, properly rehydrated or not no, no. Ah. <laughs> so much for cheap insurance
1: I just i well you know i just I just don't rehydrate dry yeast it's just the way it is, and i, I, I until I get bitten by it, I probably won't
0: uh, any other tips about packaging? Uh, get
1: somebody to help you because bottling is no fun.
0: This is true. <laughs> All right. Now we've told you things to do. I have two things not to do. And of you may have some additionals to throw in here. First one, don't use champagne yeast, please.
1: No, no, just don't do that.
0: Yeah. It, it, it only likes simple sugars. And then once you add champagne yeast to something, it kind of makes it hard for any other yeast to do anything. And I really don't like the taste. So don't use champagne yeast. There are lots of other options for you to use. Use more healthy ale yeast. Second thing, wax. I know a lot of people out there love that look of wax bottles. Oh, I'm going to do this to to protect the beer. It's going to slow down oxidation. And I don't care if you're talking wax, plastic coat, a mixture of crayons on, and hot glue. It doesn't, it doesn't actually help with the oxidation piece. It would help if things were corked, but with our crown caps, it doesn't help. The oxygen still makes ingress into the capped. So it doesn't help, and all it does is make opening the bottle a giant pain in the butt.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to mention that.
0: Those are my two big don'ts. I mean, we've mentioned a couple of others of, like, don't get the beer hot, don't ferment it warm, don't don't start with lousy yeast. Do you have anything else to add to the don't list?
1: No, I I mean, I I think that we've covered the rest of the don'ts, like, uh, don't rush it. Don't freak out if you think it's stuck. Make sure it is. And then uh, if it's stuck, deal with it. And if it's not stuck, accept it.
0: That's very zen.
1: It is, isn't it? I like that.
0: So there is the walkthrough of how we make big beers. Now, it wouldn't be a brew file show if we didn't at least give you one recipe. And since Denny and I are here and we demand equal airtime, I think we have to do two. Denny, why don't you... Lead us off with your 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 recipe that you keep referencing during this uh, show, your old stoner.
1: Okay. Old Stoner is a barley wine that I came up with uh, along with a couple friends, uh, and it's a long story how it got the name, so I'll leave that out right now. I don't think it's um, a long
0: story. It sounds pretty straightforward <laughs> to me. <make. laughs>
1: it should be pretty obvious. Huh? This, uh, The recipe that we're going to post on the website is version number 10. Uh, we've actually gotten together and made this, I think, 12 or 13 times. Uh, number 10 turned out to be a great one. It's an 11-gallon recipe, and I'll tell you right now what we do is We split it into two five gallon batches, ferment one with uh, either 1056 or 1272, ferment the other batch with 1450. And then when we get ready to bottle it, we combine those back together. So we have kind of like the best of both worlds.
0: Okay, listeners, anybody who's surprised that Denny's 1450 is somewhere in the mix of this recipe, raise your hands. Yeah. Okay. No hands.
1: Come on. You know, when, when you've got it, you use it. So the basic recipe is uh, 41 pounds of pale ale malt, 15 pounds of uh, dark Munich malt. That's around a 10L. Three pounds of Karamunic 80 and two and a half pounds of Crystal 60. Again, that's for uh, an 11-gallon batch. It uses uh, five ounces of Columbus Zeus uh, tomahawk, anything in that area, as first word hops. Seven, well, we use seven ounces of Centennial for this, for bittering. And to tell you the truth, uh, I would go for something maybe a little bit more uh, intense in bittering the next time, something a little bit more bite uh two ounces of Amarillo at ten minutes and two ounces of Centennial for dry hopping. We mash at one fifty-three. We get eleven gallons of our eleven hundred plus barley wine out of it, and then we run some more water through. Well off the often cap the mash with maybe like some uh, some sort of dark malt to make a brown ale and to tell you the truth there's enough sugar left in there we can get at least 10 gallons of a 10 sixty65 beer out of the second runnings of it. It's a very productive brew day. It's a long day, but it's productive.
0: Well, so how long? Uh,
1: you know a good a good eight nine hours and then uh, we drink like hell when it's
0: over. There we go. And maybe some pants are on fire.
1: (laughs) Yeah, not in this one. It was another one when I almost set my pants on fire.
0: I'm just going to say that every beer that you make has pants on fire somewhere.
1: You know, my my club would really appreciate it if you do that.
0: New Legend is Born. Denny uh, Denny's uh, favorite brewing method is by setting his pants on fire.
1: That's right. It, it just improves the beer measurably. So uh, what about Falcon Claws, man?
0: So now Falcon's Claws is a beer that I've made for a few years now. Made it on and off because turns out that having a 14% plus lager on hand, you don't drink it that fast. So <laughs> uh, the beer is based on the idea of Sammy Claws, which is from uh, Castle Eggenberg, uh, originally from Herlemann Brewery in Switzerland and legendary beer because they would always brew it on Swiss Christmas, which is December 6th, and the same day they brewed the next year's batch, they released the previous year's batch, so it ages for a full year. This one, uh, the recipe that I have in here that's going to go up on the website is for five and a half gallons, and it starts at an original gravity of 1140. It is a monster of a beer. It comes in at 14 plus percent uh, ABV. It has a whopping 28 IBUs. Sixteen point seven SRM, ninety minute boil, and it has three malts. Thirteen and a quarter (laughs) pounds of German pills, thirteen and a quarter pounds of German Munich, and an eighth of a pound of Carafa Special Three. And to give you an idea, when we brew this, we generally brew this as a like a twenty nine gallon batch. And so it's seventy five pounds of pills, seventy five pounds of Munich, and a a three quarters of a pound of Carafa three. Eat a lot of malt. Yeah. Keep it simple. Single infusion, 150 for 60 minutes. Keep the hops simple. And since the beer is not what I would call a very hoppy beer, after all, it's 28 IBUs in the whole thing, it starts with 0.7 ounces of Magnum at 11.5% for 60 minutes and another 0.7 ounces of Haliton fruit at a whopping 2.8% alpha acid for five minutes. You know, real simple beer, two hop additions, and really get the bitterness in with the Magnum, get the aroma in with the mill and the middle fruit is just kind of a nice hint. Uh, we use white labs, eight, eight, five zero logger or SAF logger S one eighty nine, which is the dried version of that same yeast. A uh, lot of ye- yeast nutrient and a lot of O2 Ferment minute at say 48 for two months. Loggers take longer transfer and then age at lagering temperatures for a, you know, the rest of the year. So 10 months. And then debut it and pour it out. And in that first year, even it's too intense. It's, it's a massive beer. So it takes time. I find it really comes into its own, like really starts to sing in that three to five year range. So prepare to dedicate a keg to this for a good long while. And I just keep in the corner of my keg writer, but it's a big beer. It takes a, it takes a a fair amount of work to do. And again, this is, you know, like a, a, an eight hour brew day, but man, you get a, big mammer jammer of beer out of this and yeah we tend to do this with the first runnings and maybe a little bit of sparge and then everything else goes into something in the secondary like say a schwartz beer or maybe like a belgian ale by the way you'll notice that almost always with those secondary beers i tend to go dark and i think denny you were saying that you go dark as well on yours
1: um yeah you know, I, I go back and forth
0: well uh, but i find like doing the dark stuff is actually kind of handy because then you can get some dark malts in there and maybe you know distract from any sort of second runnings flavors that may happen
1: yeah, right. You just have to be careful if you put too much in that uh, you'll drive the pH down, because remember, a lot of the buffering power of the grain is already going to be used up. So you want to just kind of watch that.
0: Now, both of these recipes are going to be on the website. We'll have them up there. We'll include links in the show notes. But we really do recommend these. The Falcon's Clause, of course, is absolutely silly, but a lot of fun. And I would say Old Stoner probably lives up to its name and makes you feel stoned. Oh, yeah. Any other tips before we before we leave the show? Patience
1: and careful thinking will get you through these,"
0: says the man with a zen-like personality to burn
1: <laughs> I'm trying, man. I'm trying.
0: Well, thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of going big. What are you going to make? A big bold barley wine like the like the old Stoner, a wintry lager like Sammy Claus Falcons Claus, something different. Maybe you're going to go Belgian. Maybe you're going to go you know a big triple IPA or something like that. Let us know. You know how to find us. In fact, if you don't, remember if you have show ideas, styles, brews, techniques, ingredients, etc., or comments about what sort of recipe you're going to make, you can drop us a line at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at Experimentalbrew.com or drew at drew.experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, on just about every homebrewing forum out there. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is
1: it is Habitat for Humanity. They're doing great work in your town, uh, helping fight homelessness by helping people build their own homes. So give us a couple bucks and we'll help everybody out
0: until next time. Remember to always brew wacky or brew experimentally. The brew is out there and we will see you on the next episode of the brew files.